Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And thank you those who came up to the live show, just like the olden days at King's Place last Monday in the hall, or the many hundreds of you who watched the streamed live version. For those of you who didn't, I'm hesitating at the shock that you weren't there. Um, I'm reporting uh, back from it the prediction that we made uh, last Monday. Because it was a few days before the by-election, I asked the audience, both watching on the stream and live in the hall, uh, to predict the outcome of the by-election. As ever with our predictions, because we delve even deeper these evenings than we do during the podcast, it wasn't what people wanted to happen, but what they predicted would happen. And then we explored the consequences. And 75% in the hall predicted that uh, Labour would lose, and 75% on the stream predicted that Labour would lose. And I think I did say on the night that that's probably the best news for Keir Starmer since he became Labour leader, because our predictions are notoriously unreliable. And once again, we got it completely wrong. Although I have heard from some uh, who got it right and explained. I, I remember asking one in the hall, because there were so few predicting a Labour win, why? And, and she was absolutely right. So congratulations if you're listening to the podcast. The person in the hall who I asked to explain why she predicted that Labour would indeed win. And the reasons she gave, I think, were spot on. Um, and it included, obviously, the Hancock affair, but other matters too. Uh, so anyway, for those of you who want more uh, delving deep live and... Uh, predictions that proved to be wholly wrong. Oh yeah, there's, I'm going to be quite busy uh, the week after next. Uh, on Wednesday, July the 14th, I'll be at um, the lovely, beautiful, it looks beautiful, I've never been there before to be honest, it looks beautiful, Abbey Hall in Suffolk. Um, and I'm told there are a few tickets left, so that's on Wednesday, July the 15th at the Abbey Hall in Suffolk, if you're in that part of the UK. Um, and then uh, the following day, I'm at the Rope Tackle Art Centre in uh, Shoreham. And that is currently sold out, but do check on the website or phone in because there might be some tickets around. Then on Sunday, July the 18th, I'm live at the Greenwich Theatre, which is a lovely, brilliant theatre, and it will be a great evening. And for those of you who came to King's Place, it will be an entirely different evening because we will be reflecting on other matters and no doubt politics will have changed again, as it has indeed since last Monday when we gathered for the live rock and roll politics. So those are some of the events coming up live. And oh, it's so good to see people for real, just like the olden days. Um, so let's see if there is some... Uh, great reflections at those various events and as I say a few tickets left for that one in Abbey Hall in Suffolk uh, the one at the Rope Tackle currently sold out but do check in if you're in that sort of area on the south coast Brighton etc and then Greenwich for a night of delving deep at the Greenwich Theatre on Sunday July the 18th Okay, let's begin with that by-election that we got completely 
wrong on Monday night. And the fact that we got it wrong, in a way, highlights its significance. By-elections, there's a sort of easy piece to write that by-elections don't really matter. And you can make that argument by citing the 1980s, where Labour often made quite spectacular gains in by-elections and then lost general elections. However, it ignores the central importance of by-elections, which is that they, when they are a surprise and unexpected, they change the immediate political narrative. No one can claim long-term consequences because we don't know what they will be at the point where a by-election result surprises us. Um, But the surprise itself is hugely significant. And it was so interesting listening to the Today programme on Friday because they really couldn't cope with the fact that Labour had won. Like most of us, they had assumed Labour would lose. They had set up a kind of rather clunky Labour in turmoil, civil war type discussion with Peter Mandelson on one extreme and Diane Abbott on the other. And suddenly Labour had won. And actually, the win raises equally interesting questions as a Labour defeat, but they couldn't cope really with the sudden change or challenging of widely held assumptions. It's rather like the 2017 election where all commentators virtually got it wrong. Um, And so their only way of coping was to sort of almost airbrush it out of history and rarely reflect on it. Um, But the result does have immediate consequences. It's become a cliche now, but it's true that it gives Keir Starmer more space, obviously, than if Labour had lost. If Labour had lost, that Mandelson-Abbott contrivance set up by the Today programme would have been the mere beginning of a noisy din uh, of uncertain outcome. Who knows whether there would have been an immediate challenge from Angela Rayner or anyone else. I suspect not, but we will never know now because they didn't get the trigger required for such a challenge, a Labour defeat. Uh, Instead, there is a framing which itself is not wholly ideal for a leader of the opposition, which is Keir Starmer has space to show he can lead and deliver. The reason why that, and and of which, by the way, the party conference is sort of being seen as a central, pivotal moment. Um, I'm always wary of these uh, big test of leadership moments um, because a, it's quite hard to for a leader to deliver. Oh, you know, it's make or break for Keir Starmer. Make or break big test for Starmer, can he do it? You know, the party conference, one speech, a few interviews. Um, it, it's a much bigger task, really, of leadership uh, in the months to come. And the most significant opening up of space is, if it happens, still a big if in my view, that uh, the pandemic is really under control. I speak as cases are soaring. Um, is that there will be a more familiar return to orthodox party politics. And he needs to seize that moment big time. 
and it's much more than a party conference. But if the framing is, oh, yeah, yeah, forget no, nothing matters now, it's all the party conference, party conference, you can already hear the anticlimactic responses. Oh, you know, it was... It, it, oh, it wasn't as good as we expected, or blah, 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 blah. And, and, and it's back in sort of crisis mode. However, that framing, and leaders only have limited space to make the framing that they particularly want, that framing is better for Keir Starmer than uh, leadership turmoil, possible challenge, another leadership contest, a Labour looking wholly inwards again it must be a party with a unique capacity to look inwards rather than outwards so that's interesting what he has to do there are many things we haven't got time on the podcast uh, to to list them all but I think some of the advice in inverted commas he's getting is so cliched and misjudged I'm just going to look at one uh, today which I keep on reading, uh, that in order to prove he is a strong leader and to acquire identity, he must, in inverted commas, take his party on. He must, to quote again, have a row with his party. Uh, I've read that uh, Jonathan Friedland wrote a piece to that effect. Uh, it was then read out as if it was the Bible by Justin Webb on the Today programme. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, the, the sort of uh, narrow range of impartiality at the BBC. Justin Webb wouldn't read a piece, say, by John McDonnell about what Keir Starmer should do um, because it's beyond really what they can cope with. But a piece saying a leader should take their party on becomes almost a form of impartiality. But it's just wrong in this sense, not the sense that this party is uh, a robust vessel uh, propelling itself towards power. It is clearly virtually wholly dysfunctional. And I've mentioned one example of it. It's unique capacity to look inwards at all times. Um, I'm interested in McDonald, and I thought he had some interesting ideas as Shadow Chancellor, and he was a surprisingly good interviewee, and as Shadow Chancellor, kind of almost single-handedly kept that ramshackle show on the road. Um, but I've just heard him do an interview and it was all about the internal battles to come that need to be fought and I can understand why people take this Peter Madelson's the same we've got to get rid of these people we've got to do this it's all internal whereas actually parties that win elections look outwards and this is the great myth bought by large elements of the BBC, bought by brilliant columnists like Jonathan Friedland and Raphael Baer, the successful leaders of the opposition acquire vote-winning identity by taking their parties on. Starmer has obviously got to change his party, but that's a different thing, as I'll explain. He's already done a lot to change the party, actually. Uh, the shadow cabinet is wholly different. Uh, the makeup of the national executive is wholly different, 
He's got a new general secretary. He's about to reconfigure his office again or has started doing so. So he's already done quite a lot, actually. Um, but here is the thing. Successful, vote-winning leaders of the opposition do something much smarter than trigger a kind of internal civil war. They work with their parties while guiding their parties towards their vision as far as leaders have them. So, for example, take the case of Thatcher, very interesting, uh, who is regarded, of course, uh, and with justification, as being the great change maker, really, in British politics uh, post that 45 Labour government. In opposition, she didn't, and incidentally didn't get the advice to do so. The advice only goes to Labour leaders because the media can't cope with elements of that party. But Thatcher decided, rightly, to keep a very mixed shadow cabinet. Most of the shadow cabinet leading up to that 79 election were at odds with her and uh, viewed her with a degree of disdain, not just about her style, but ideological differences too. So at the top of her shadow cabinet were Willie Whitelaw, who actually stood against her in the leadership contest uh, when, when she won it, a sort of absolute one-nation Tory of the sort of close Heath mould of Tory leadership. Uh, Jim Pryor had a key economic post. Uh, uh, there are endless other examples. Ian Gilmore was in the shadow cabinet, a figure well to the left of Tony Blair, say. Um, she kept them all there. Being in opposition, especially when you're not miles ahead in the polls, and Thatcher never was miles ahead in the polls, and indeed, in terms of personal ratings, was nearly always behind Jim Callaghan. Uh, she kept all of them in. She didn't challenge them, didn't take on her party and say, right, that one-nation form of Toryism is dead, we're changing the Conservative Party to become this Thatcherite monetarist party. No, she kept them all on board, so the electorate formed the impression broadly of a united party and won the 79 election. And then from a position of strength, when Labour split in 1981, you know, Labour and the SDP, then she moved more towards her kind of party, bringing people like Norman Tebbit into the cabinet and so on. That's how you do it. You develop your ideas as much as you can, but you keep a semblance of unity. Harold Wilson, who from opposition won in 64 and again just in 1974, was famous for making sure unity was as possible as it could be in that deeply divided party. And uh, he prioritised it quite openly. Uh, and in fact, when he left office, uh, one of the things he said he was proud of, so he said, I kept the Labour Party united. And at the time, it seemed like a sort of trivial thing for a long-serving prime minister to claim as a great achievement. But given the chaos that erupted around Labour soon after he left, you can see what he means. And he, at no point, and, and some people have criticised him for this, but Certainly in opposition, he prioritised unity rather than 
defeating one side or contriving a civil war. And I've got absolutely no doubt, certainly in the 70s, and indeed, actually, in the build-up to the 1964 election, which Labour only just won, if there had been some kind of contrived civil war for him to acquire definition as, in inverted commas, a strong leader, Labour would have lost. In the same way, I suspect if Thatcher had taken on her party, they would have lost. It's even a myth that Tony Blair really did it. Yes, he did it with Claus four, but... That was a sort of symbolic campaign. Wilson himself had said Clause 4 was a relic of no practical relevance. It wasn't over a policy, even over a clear ideological position. Um, it was a sim symbol to suggest that Labour had moved on from a particular aspect of its ancient past. Other than that, and rightly, Blair spoke outwards to the electorate did not engage in endless battles and, in fact, took great care to try to keep the party on board. It's very interesting if you read Chris Mullins' excellent diaries. The main motif, as you'll know, is the pointlessness of being a junior minister. But one of the interesting things about it was how Blair, when Mullin was chair of, I can't remember what he was chair of, chair of the backbenchers or something. He had a formal role representing uh, the parliamentary party. Blair used to meet him every week. Mullen became increasingly impressed with Blair. It was about managing and unifying as much as was possible under these vote-winning leaders. And Cameron, most emphatically, didn't take on his party. He did this odd thing of, uh, saying he was modernising the party and he did the easy things about around some elements of social liberalism, although, remember, gay marriage did not happen until he was safely ensconced in number 10. He certainly did not advocate that as leader of the opposition. And the fault line when he became leader of the opposition was Europe. And, of course, he didn't take his party on at all. He did the opposite. He fueled the Euroscepticism by, as part of his leadership campaign, saying he would take the Conservatives out of the centre-right, uh, broad-based grouping in the European Parliamentary uh, Parliament. Um, so, you know, it's a complete myth. Neil Kinnock famously did take on Labour relentlessly. Uh, he had no choice but to do so in some respects, and he lost two elections. Now, there's a different argument about whether, you know, a leader has a responsibility to challenge elements of a party. Um, but if you are arguing that a leader has a responsibility above all to win an election, I promise you the route to it is not to trigger some kind of civil war. Instead, you should do what actually Starmer began doing, uh, up to the point where he went, in my view, over the top in his uh, suspending Jeremy Corbyn from the party. It, it was a massive thing to do. And look, he's still not, in inverted commas, got credit for it, uh, because people are still saying he should take on his party. He has suspended the former leader with whom he served in the shadow cabinet. Um, but on that's the other thing with Kinnock. He took on his party once, and then the media would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great, that shows he's strong. And then they say, do something else, and do something else, and on and on it goes. Um, and the, the leadership in opposition is more textured than that, the demands. 
And it's about building up values, policies linked to those values that are both credible and exciting. Uh, explaining those to a wider electorate via a media which is becoming increasingly complex in the range of outlets. Um, and of course, it is about managing people and a party and uh, in ways that give the impression, at least, of a kind of unifying sense of purpose and mission. It is with these two big parties, what Wilson used to call a broad church, a massive challenge and an act of artistry because of course they're split all over the place but you give the impression of a unified sense of purpose and mission in the build-up to a general election and if that's not there Labour will lose as the Tories lost after 97, uh, 2001, 2005. So anyway there's loads you could reflect on uh, in terms of advice for labor and how to win and so on but that's one bit of and by the way it's very imprecise the advice you know take the party on over what an idea a policy are you going to start expelling vast numbers i i don't know i don't know as i say this is not uh, my assessment that this labor party is a robust vessel uh, it, it loses elections you know, with record-breaking ease, but you change it intelligently, subtly, and you try and bring most people with you, not contrive a fight. And if you contrive a fight, this is what will happen. A lot of the commentators the next day will say, oh yeah, how strong, what a sign of strength. Then when uh, the reaction to the assertion of strong leadership comes from elements of that party uh, the commentators say well you've got to take them on again and meanwhile the editorials will say well the part this party labor in this case is split down the middle um you know and 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 it all rebounds if that is the sort of crude strategic take and these commentators who say it should really look at other opposition leaders who have won elections because it challenges that thesis. doesn't challenge the thesis that Labour uh, is a party that needs to look outwards and not have these endless, internal, incestuous battles. Um, but it does challenge the thesis that you contrive a very public row stroke civil war um, as a way of winning an election. Voters don't follow any of it. They'll just notice a party at war with each other and not vote for it. Um, so anyway, that's one bit of advice that needs greater subtlety uh, that Keir Starmer's getting in, again, a by-election which has created space. And incidentally, it's done another thing like the last one uh, where the Lib Dems made that very big gain. It has raised questions about Boris Johnson's vote-winning capacity, a capacity, of course, that gives him omnipotence over his government. Uh, it's a government that um, doesn't rate Johnson for his policy-making skills, his management of people, his sense of moral mission. But as a vote winner, a British Prime Minister is incredibly powerful. 
uh, because, you know, the BBC and the media see this prime minister as likely to be around for a long time. They are more subservient and less uh, uh, critical in tone. And MPs think, wow, only this figure can get us back in. I'll put up with his faults or her faults, in this case his. Um, now, that is called into question a little, no more, but a little, as a result of these recent by-elections. So their immediate significance is great. It's up to those who have benefited from that significance to give them a longer-term significance. Okay, after all of that, let's go to your question. Oh, yeah, I was going to... We've been going for more than 24 minutes. I was going to go and reflect on England, the football team, and the fascination with England as a team and the... Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to, actually. Um, it, I, it is really interesting. Um, but I'm going to go on to your questions. I'll tell you what, if England win, um, I'll wait to record the podcast until after the final. And we can reflect a bit about football and politics. It's, it's, it's very interesting on so many levels. But that's another one. Um, let's go to your questions. Uh, Venetia Kane uh, wrote the day after the show with some follow-up uh, questions. Um, this, this is an interesting and, uh, and quite significant, I think. As the Tory media have been having a go at Johnson over the non-sacking of Hancock, does this mean they're preparing a campaign to get rid of him? No, it doesn't, uh, Venetia. But this is part of the thing I was saying about when a prime minister loses by-elections, he expects to win. Uh, when the Tory media, specifically the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, the Times, are critical of a prime minister, uh, that in itself can be very demoralising for the prime minister involved. Uh, John Major's kind of traumas really began with the attacks on him from in after we fell out of the ERM in September 1992 from the newspapers that had supported him in the election a few months earlier in April 1992. Now the current onslaught isn't like that but the Mail and others have gone for him over Hancock not sacking him and then pretending that he did sack him what chutzpah by the way um, and and others. As I've said before, the BBC is quite scared of attacking, or not attacking because they, they, they don't, but, but highlighting the problems of a Tory uh, prime minister with an 80-seat majority um, looking as if he might be there for some time. But when Tory newspapers, which are on the whole really scare the BBC, like the Mail do it, it gives them permission to give prominence to the coverage. Um, so that's what happens when you get this kind of thing, uh, as an undermining of confidence within the top of the Conservative Party and on other levels, and a permission for the BBC to highlight problems in a slightly more critical tone, I think. And that's what's happened so far. But no, they are not preparing a campaign to get rid of him. As I say, it's early days in terms of measuring the significance of the by-election defeats for the Conservatives, or rather uh, the seats that they thought they were going to win, those two seats. Uh, uh, Kathy Mears was reflecting on, 
Yeah, this thing about Cummings that I've been talking about, Dominic Cummings. Uh, Dominic Cummings, I've argued, fascination with how government can deliver might. I've merely posed the question. Place it more on the left than the right. However, she makes a good point. Uh, Cummings' obsession is with brilliant individuals. Um, and that makes his desire for more efficient government, more autocratic than left-wing. He's definitely anti-democratic, and his promotion of state action is more to do with monarchical government than parliamentary. That's an interesting point. He's not a fan of parliament. You're right. Um, and so, yeah, that's got me thinking a bit about um, where I place uh, Dominic Cummings. You're right as well. He elevates individuals in a way and wants to bypass sort of democratic institutions in some respects. I still think his fascination with how you deliver as a state um, is is interesting, but I, that that's a very illuminating interpretation. Uh, Kay Bolt uh, said, "Oh, I oh she watched the screening, the stream version of the show, uh, very lively, and uh, she likes the, the way the politicians are. Oh, yeah, the Shakespearean dimension. I try and bring out. There will be some more Shakespeare. Um, those events I told you were coming up in uh, later this month." Um, oh yeah, she was reflecting on the interview Nick Robinson did with uh, Robert Buckland um, after the Hancock departure uh, and the sense of the wider uh, responsibility of um, or lack of responsibility within this particular Johnson administration. Um, and how, it was a tough interview about a week ago. I don't know whether you all heard it, uh, but it did reflect this sense of that the media has got permission or they have decided they've got to, permission to probe quite hard post-Hancock, um, if you know what I mean. Okay, uh, Jonathan Millens. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jonathan watched a live stream in Brussels. Um, and he was thinking about uh, uh, Lord Frost inevitably came up um, and so did his Union Jack socks and his sausages and this uh, utterly Orwellian thing he is doing of rejecting his own protocol that he ne negotiated and saying what a disaster it is as though he's got nothing to do with it. Um, and Jonathan writes, I've been listening to his latest appearance before the Culture Select Committee. This is the DCMS Committee. I think that's the one where old Frosty um, said that Elton John flourished and sold many records in Europe before we joined the European Union. It's all about, you know, um, the sudden cutting off for artists, this whole e European Union. Um, Frosty got it completely wrong. Um, and, uh, yeah, Jonathan reflects the sheer arrogance is breathtaking. Yeah, it is. It is a form of arrogance. Um, anyway, uh, he recommends we all watch it. Um, so yeah, before you go to the, those, my shows, it's, um, there's a link to it. I, I watched it actually, Jonathan, I'm, I'm following Frosty closely. He turns down most broadcast interviews, but he does these select committees and I feel a responsibility to watch because he has such power. He hasn't been elected. Um, and uh, they are always alarming. Um, Matthew Johnson, uh, greetings from the rock and rollers in Dubai. Hello, Dubai, as they say in rock and roll world. 
Um, I wonder whether the rivalry and competition in politics continues after they leave office. Did David Cameron look at Nick Clegg with his global and lucrative Facebook career and feel the need to have to earn more and do more to succeed further? Um, yeah, and, he, and Matthew points out when Clegg leaves Facebook, he will cash in his share options and be worth several million dollars. Actually, um, I, it's interesting, uh, Matthew, there is this competitive element uh, to Cameron. Um, you know that famous phrase, I just think I'd be quite good at being Prime Minister, the sort of Etonian thing and trying to beat Boris Johnson to the leadership and now Johnson wanting to serve to, uh, longer in number 10 than Cameron. Um, the post-rivalries, I think, are genuinely less intense. I think Cameron... Uh, wants to be ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy because he hangs out with a lot of people like that. Blair was the same to some extent. Um, I wonder whether he feels jealous of Clegg. Maybe he does. Um, and that might partly explain uh, his foolish greed, um, which has got him into so much trouble. Uh, Steve Petrie uh, writes, and... Uh, with what he regards as a dilemma for Starmer. Can Starmer both placate the left of his party and build an electoral coalition which includes voters who find the Labour left deeply unattractive? Well, Steve, I've kind of addressed that. You imply he can't and that he needs to, uh, to use that phrase, take on uh, the left. My view is that for a party in opposition to win, you have to weave it all together, however difficult it is. And he was sort of doing that in the early phase of his uh, leadership. And his personal rating, Starmer's, reached a point when it was much higher than Boris Johnson's. I think it could get back to that again once the whole va vaccine effect uh, has passed by. And I think you know, the, the vaccine thing, some people say it's like the Falklands with Thatcher, it, it will be there forever. Um, I wonder, I think there will be opportunities with Johnson's conduct and his unsuitability for large elements of leadership, not all, um, there are bits of it, he, he, he flourishes with it, um, but with a lot of it, uh, there will be opportunities, but I don't think they can be taken if there's a sort of bloody civil war in the Labour Party uh, as the only main opposition party. But I, I, you, you, I think, uh, disagree. But it's one of the great dilemmas, especially for Labour leaders, about how you acquire positive definition. And it's very tempting to go, because, you know, you've got no power to implement policies. Uh, you show your power by doing something within your party, but as I say, the vote winners have managed their party quite subtly and engaged with the wider electorate at all times. Um, I've had an email exchange this week with Peter Landers, who came to the show and made me feel terrible when he told me how much he paid uh, for his train fare to get to uh, the King's Place show in London. I, all I, would, I won't reveal the figure, but I can tell you the whole lot of you got no excuse for not coming, um, given how much... Uh, Peter uh, paid and uh, he he raised a couple of interesting um, questions about you see we contextualize on this show uh, why did Harold Wilson 
have the election in June 1970. Why not go in the traditional October period? Because Wilson famously lost in 1970. Was there really a calculation based on the national euphoria that the 1966 World Cup victory had engendered, that the same feeling would propel Labour to another big win? Um, and that was... Um, of course, the Mexico World Cup coincided with the June 1970 election. Maybe on that basis, Peter, Boris Johnson will call an election next week. Um, but Wilson thought he was going to win it. Um, he did used to go around saying, um, Have you noticed that England only win World Cups under a Labour government? Um, but he called the June 70 election... Uh, because Paul suggested he was had long planned for it. Paul suggested he would win, and he never got over losing it. It was uh, devastating for him. Um, so um, that's uh, that. On the whole, prime ministers call elections when they think they can win them, especially without these fixed-term parliaments, which have conveniently been dropped by the current prime minister. Um, Scott Creswell says, as a disgruntled Labour member, I'm interested to know whether the Labour Party of the 1980s and 90s treated Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan in the way that Labour treats Tony Blair now. To me, Labour victories are rare and the party should cherish them. Well, actually, there was a bit of dissing of uh, Wilson and Callaghan by actually the new Labour people. Peter Mandelson has now accepted it was a, they went too far. The actual term New Labour uh, dumped Wilson and Callaghan as old Labour and, um, you know, very much um, to Callaghan's despair, Wilson uh, was uh, suffering from Alzheimer's when Blair became leader and died soon afterwards. But Callaghan was uh, insulted and he, I did an interview with Callaghan. He said, I'm, I'm original Labour, not old Labour. So the, there's always this tendency within the Labour Party, unlike the Tory Party, to dump on previous uh, vote-winning leaders. And given that they've got so few of them, it does seem to be a perverse tendency. Um, thank you very much. Nick Bath, now listen to this. Uh, Nick, I'm proud to be in the 25%-ish who thought Labour would win the by-election via with reference to King's Place's show last Monday. Uh, yet again, the reliable barometer that the audience prediction is nearly always wrong was right. Um, seems like a Galloway-Hancock double act worked in Starmer's favour. That's what uh, uh, the woman who I called out to explain why she was making the same prediction, that's what she said. I also think the potency of standing Joe Cox's sister shouldn't be underestimated. She was also a very good candidate. She was, you know, there was an integrity and energy about her. Um, could this moment with Chesham and Amersham in the background be the subject of a future Johnson-Starmer turning point reflection? Yeah, thank you for that, Nick. I've done a series about turning points in politics. Very interesting question. And I, I, I've kind of answered it at the beginning. We never know for sure. There is a short-term significance to both those by-elections. Will it be a long-term turning point? The joy of politics is that none of us know. But the question is being posed, and it wasn't being posed before uh, the by-election uh, last Thursday. 
Okay, let's um, thank you for that and congratulations for getting the prediction right. I mean, completely defying the uh, duty of our audiences and myself to get everything wholly wrong. Um, Alan Evans, uh, long-time listener but first emailer. Uh, Alan says, oh, well, welcome to the question element of the uh, podcast, Alan. Um, and he says, do you think the BBC should be compelled to analyse on the future of the Conservative Party and its leadership after the latest two by-election defeats for at least the next month to balance out what they would have done if Labour had lost Batley and Spen? Yeah, I mean, I think it is... I mean, the BBC is not overtly bias they don't sit there and think how do we do this to favor one party or another they none of them do um and i can tell you i was a bbc political correspondent during the whole fall of john major i genuinely don't know how the other political correspondents voted i don't know how editors we work for voted um but it is this thing there is always a bias in favor of fashionable orthodoxy that they feel that they want to follow and as I said earlier the fact that Labour won through them because they thought Labour were going to lose and had prepared accordingly and they couldn't reflect that actually it was at least as interesting that Labour had won but for different reasons um, thank you very much for your first call. I know you wrote a lot more, Alan, but if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll move on now. But do keep on emailing. Um, and I read the other points and questions. Um, uh, uh, Tony Ahmet from Solihull says, with all the indicators predicting a Tory win in Batley and Spen right up to the time of the Hancock revelations last week, do you think that Hancock cost the Tories the win there? I certainly think, if I can put it this way, Tony, he played his part. Um, but I don't think it was um, the only reason uh, that um, they lost. By-elections are always complex. Uh, there are local issues, there are national, um, but there's no doubt Hancock made his unique contribution. Um, uh, great to hear again from uh, the Reverend Paul Arbuthnot from uh, the Diocese of Cork, Cloyne and Ross. And he, <laughs> he has emailed a letter um, that um, uh, uh, someone, I don't know whether you know him or knew him, Paul, but somebody from the uh, work, what a prophetic letter this is, from the Workers' Party uh, in uh, Ireland uh, in 1987, no, sorry, 89, wrote a letter to George Galloway. And it goes like this. Uh, and he, uh, uh, his, Paul has sent me a copy of it, uh, which he, he got. Um, where did he? I thought you might this appreciate this letter i don't know how he got it but anyway uh, it just goes like this it, there's uh, one sentence <laughs> dear mr galloway uh, this is september 1989 not recent i thought i was writing to a person of sincerity and reason but i find you are just a typically abusive trotskyist shit <laughs> goodbye and then the letter was signed um yeah I mean, that was uh, 1989, um, and uh, George Galloway has been on sort of some fairly wild journeys since then. Um, so thank you so much for sending it in, and thank you for your nice comments about the shows and podcasts uh, uh, from 
Ireland. Much appreciated. Uh, Paul Cooper finally says, uh, in Batley and Spen, a voter said that it was the Labour Council's fault that local services were being cut and that they were voting Conservative in the hope of some extra money for the area. Uh, Paul wonders from the Towns Fund, so-called, which seems to benefit areas that return Conservative MPs. Um, this point of view was also expressed recently in Hartlepool. Yeah, good point. The Labour Council was criticised in Hartlepool. I don't want to uh, belittle the argument here, but why is it so hard to understand how local government works, that the council tax um, is uh, uh, only one element of the funding for a council and that central government distribution is absolutely pivotal? Um, and yet it is the local council uh, that is held to account. Um, and Paul adds that in not acknowledging this or recognising this, I think like Brexit, the voters are not without blame here. I agree with that, Paul. I mean, we, we can say it. Uh, politicians can't. Uh, but voters too easily blame um, without actually looking into the uh, levels or layers of culpability and responsibility and yeah on brexit too there's a whole thing to be done about those who willed it without really knowing what it is that they were willing so well god brilliant questions now somebody emailed me although it's a contradiction really they emailed me and saying steve you should give out the email more often for questions and I thought, well, how do you know the email if you're telling me I should give it out? But anyway, uh, for those who want to raise points, questions, um, they come from all over the world, as you could probably pick up from today. Uh, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. And yeah, do make your points. We'll, who knows where it's going to be next week? There's this opening up, Freedom Day, Freedom Day looming. Um, say England, will they be in that final? They've got to get through a semi-final. Why is everyone so excited by it? I know why on the obvious levels. Um, but it's so, you know, and I follow, for, I'm a season ticket holder at Spurs. I I'm, follow it like I follow politics. But um, it is bonkers on so many levels anyway maybe more of that next week who knows however uh, that must be it today some of you will have made loaves of bread rode your way to fitness running breaking all speeding records while you've been listening but thanks again it's been brilliant just a reminder uh, Greenwich Theatre on Sunday week uh, hope to see as many of you as possible there and there were a couple of other live events that I mentioned yes yeah, Sunday July the 18th at Greenwich uh when Wednesday in Southwold I gave the details at the beginning Thursday at the Rope Tackle in Shoreham um which will be great to see everyone uh down there as well and see you all uh when we gather next week to make sense of madness thank you very much Oh, yeah, by the way, please leave a review, you know, if you, if you do it on the uh, iPhone thing. Apparently, it kind of gets to more people by magic. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.